electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. New month, new record highs. So what will November hold for your money? We debate that with the investment committee today. Find out what they are buying and selling. Joining me for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, and Pete Nigerian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's go to the wall, take a look at the markets. Dow, NASDAQ, S&P, all setting new records off the open today. Dow going above 36,000 for the first time ever. We've got historically the second best month for stocks, that being November. So, Joe, how do you feel about the set, the, uh, the setup going into the end of the year now? Well, to, well, I feel good about the setup. Uh, we're coming off an earnings season where, obviously, since the beginning, we've seen the S&P rise 5.5%. And I think, Scott, what's interesting about that is that the support is coming from a lot of sectors that I don't think the expectation was there for that support to really... Uh, be a contributing factor. I think everyone was looking at technology and saying, okay, it's going to be mega cap technology that's going to lift the index higher. But it's really been financials and energy, which are reporting 15% above profit consensus estimate. So I think the path is higher here as we move forward. I understand we're going to get some earnings with a lot of consumer-oriented equity names in the coming days. But I still think you focus on what has been working in the market Stay with that strategy, and I highlight financials because that clearly has been working. You're seeing evidence of that and also energy, materials, and some of the consumer names uh, that are working today as well. Pete, what we got? Smooth sailing now into the end of the year? Is that Uh, that how the setup is to you? I I would say that the only reason I would say yes to that would be I, I see this rotation. Joe was just talking about it, but it's a different leadership almost every single day, Scott. I mean, some days... Energy's up a couple of percent. There are other days where it's down maybe one percent. But the reality is this rotation within all these various sectors, I think, has been very healthy. It's been healthy for multiple months. This is exactly what we've been looking for. Take a look at October, for instance. We started off the beginning of the month, concerns about uh, the earnings, what was going to really happen, what were going to be the deliveries, different types of comps. We were at about a 24 VIX, and now here we are closer to, we got underneath 15, but well, let's call it 16 or 17. So it gives you a little bit of an idea of where the money is moving around and the nervousness of the money as well. And I think we're seeing that start to come off because we're seeing, as we've gotten through this earnings season, generally, most of them were accepted pretty well. Obviously, late last week with Apple and Amazon, there was a little bit of a different story, but even that rebounded towards the end of the day. So I think that there's a lot of this rotation makes me feel a lot more comfortable about the markets themselves going into the end of the year. We still have supply constraints. We're going to have labor issues. Those are in front of us, I think, for many, many months. But will that get a little bit better? Yeah, I think as we push through the rest of this year, it'll just improve just a little bit more and a little bit more going into 2022. All right, Bryn. So Kramer says today we're in some bizarre halcyon period. And look, Pisani (laughs) points out November to January is typically the S&P's best three-month stretch. So you got history on your side. 
And by the way, the naysayers are getting tired. And I'm looking down again at <laughs> Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson. He's still negative, of course, uh, but the recent trend is not his friend. Okay, and he knows it. He knows it. He says today, bottom line, the fundamental picture for stocks is deteriorating as the Fed starts to tighten monetary policy. However, asset price, I'm jumping around a little bit. However, asset prices are continuing to rise as retail investors keep plowing excess cash into these same investments. If our analysis is correct, we think that this bullish trend can continue into Thanksgiving, but not much longer. So what do you think? Yeah, well, let, let's let's peel that back. So, you know, first of all, we have to remember that the markets like to climb this wall of worry. And I do think that the corporate tax increases that seem to be off the table of moving that higher is incredibly positive because that that could have taken away about ten dollars of S&P earnings you know, next year. Now, talking about the Fed. So the Fed is expected to start their taper, announce the taper this week. We think they're going to do 15 billion a month per month. So that would say they would end that in June of 22. And so whereas Mike's talking about rate hikes, just to remember Fed funds is we're at zero, zero to 25. So if we got two Fed hikes at the end of 2022, that puts Fed funds at 75 basis points. So that is a wonderful environment when Fed funds are at 75 and you have the 10 year between, let's say, 150 and two. That's actually a healthy environment. What's not healthy is staying at zero. And so I think that low rate environment that is here to stay, because remember, we have about 30 trillion of we have we'll have 30 trillion of U.S. debt by the end of the year as rates are they average one percent. That's 300 billion dollars a year an interest that we will be paying. So the Fed needs to keep rates low. And I think that bodes well for technology and a bunch of other sectors. And so I think inflation will be higher. And, you know, I want to I want to close this thought on something that I heard Satya Nadella say the other day on his earnings call. And he said, digital technologies are a deflationary force in an inflationary economy. And so I just think where inflation will run higher over the next few years than it has, I still think technology is a great place to be. And I love how he summarized what, what Microsoft is doing. OK, Weiss, um, Mr. Positive, you always bring good vibes to the, uh, the show. Always, uh, you know, happy go lucky. <laughs> how do you see it between now and the end of the year? Well, good seeing you, too, Scott. Um, Welcome, Weiss. I hope you had a nice weekend on today. <laughs> I, I do. No, you Thank don't. you. Look here. Look, I, I think there's be some volatility. The uh, trend of least resistance is higher. It's no surprise the Fed's going to announce a tapering tomorrow, and I think do it by the 15th. So that's pretty much priced in already. Mark doesn't seem to care. They may talk about bringing interest rate increases, actual rate increases forward. We'll get to see that. Uh, I think the market believes that'll happen also. Uh, I think it's a question of where you want to be. We are seeing some loosening in the supply chain. I got a copy of Pete's book in a few days instead of three weeks. That's a joke. I've never ordered his book. But I am getting goods that are coming in sooner rather than later. Uh, so, look, as the supply chain loosens, in my view, you're not going to want to be in the commodities, the hard commodities. You aren't going to be more in the consumer stocks. I've got representation there. And in the chips 
We're hearing from Land Rover that the chip crisis is easing for them. I think that's going to be consistent. Volkswagen said the fourth quarter, which we're in now, is going to be good. So to me, the market's going to be up. I don't see it moving up 10%. I think 5% would be a phenomenal move. Uh, but there's going to be volatility, so you have to be prepared for that. But seasonally, this is time you want to be in the market. Yeah, I mean, 5%, I think anybody would take 5% over the next It'd be great. couple of months compared to what it looked like might happen, Steve not three weeks ago. Yep. Right? That, that's the upside top, in my view. You're not going to see it run away. So when we talk about new highs, if you close a point up today versus uh, yesterday or Friday, that's a new high. So you have to be careful of that. Again, it's the rotation that's going to happen underneath. And I do believe in some of the harder commodities, you're going to lose some steam because everybody's on board. Nobody thinks they're going down. And guess what? Commodities are just impossible. It's always the marginal buyer or seller that gets you into trouble there. Let me ask so you this. Be me, with the tried and true. Let me ask you this, yep. Joe. Joe, we, we cool with the taper? I mean, if Powell on Wednesday says it's here, it's done. Uh, the market's cool with that? Or are we going to have a new bout of volatility as we digest exactly what's going to take place? I think the taper is priced in. Uh, I would expect a schedule uh, that ends at some point at the end of June. I think for anyone to think that we should not be tapering would be ludicrous at this point. And I also think the Federal Reserve needs to be responding now that we understand what the infrastructure and social spending bill is going to be looking like. To Bryn's point, I don't think there's as much fiscal tightening as markets maybe were concerned with a couple of months ago. I think the Federal Reserve has to acknowledge that, and I think they have to take a a far more hawkish position, both surrounding tapering and the introduction of tightening, and they'll do that in some form of their uh, communication. All right, let's bring in our Fed whisperer, if you will, Steve Leisman, our senior economics reporter, obviously on the beat. Um, so, Steve, it's a done deal. Is, is it going to happen? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a fe- an announcement tomorrow of a taper. Uh, it will be Wednesday. The announcement will come out. Uh, and they're going to start in November. And I think they're going to be pretty aggressive. Uh, I think an earlier speaker had the number right, about $15 billion a month. That should um, get them done by mid next year. And then... You know, you know, Scott, I'm interested the way the market is talking about their, or, or taking this news on on the Fed. What's happened, obviously, is the market is completely repriced next year. When you look at the probabilities of rate hikes to follow the taper, it's a big change. Uh, you, I'm looking now at a 62 percent chance of a June rate hike now priced in to the Fed funds futures market, 95 percent by December. Uh, and that's obviously six months earlier mm-hmm. than we would have thought. And then you go on and you look at the chance of a second hike, Scott. Go on. Uh, 52% chance of a second hike by September. 77% by December 2022. I would have thought that in the face of that news, I would have seen a little bit of, you know, uh, uh, perspiration on, on, the, on the head of uh, the Jerry in there. But, you know, I got high-definition TV. I didn't see a bead of no. sweat on that paint, I got to tell you. No, but I mean... Not a bead of sweat. And... and He's just taking it completely. I'm, you know, I've got high death here, Scott. I'm not seeing it at all. So do, do we, Pete, on that note, you know, all jokes aside, I mean, do we believe what Joe said, that it's, it's baked? Market gets it, whether it's a taper or... I think the baked. Yeah, I, I, I hear you on the first rate hike I don't thing know. being pulled forward. But, I mean, if the market was so concerned yeah. with that, Steve, it wouldn't be reacting the, the way it is, and rates wouldn't be where they are. I'd be a little careful about this, about when the market internalizes stuff. Um, 
the, the, it's in the Fed funds futures market. I don't see it, and we'll report this tomorrow. This kind of aggressive pricing is not in the Fed fund survey yet, which means the guys who are watching and thinking about things and not, you know, the market pricing are not quite as aggressive. They're more aggressive than they were, but they're not quite as aggressive as the market is right now. So unclear how much of it has been internalized. But if your outlook, I guess, is the following, that inflation comes down at least somewhat under control, perhaps it remains higher than 2%, but it doesn't raise at 5%. And then you look at the trade in some of the stocks today, for example, the discretionary, and this is all about the re-reopening, or maybe we're on the re-re-re-reopening, I'm not sure where we are now, and, and better growth ahead. Um, and you do all of that against what, a 60 or a 75 basis point Fed funds mark, I don't think that's that much of a upward slope for the for either earnings or growth to uh, to have to traverse uh, in order to, to have some good results. You think we're going to lose, Steve, the transitory word on Wednesday? It may it may well be. I do think still the Fed has this idea that we get the supply chain under control uh, and that we start to alleviate those issues. But I, I think that they're less thinking that this is going away for example, by the beginning of the year. Remember, it was the fall, the one that we're sort of in now, when it was going to go away. And then it was sort of the end of the year. Uh, and now it looks like they believe that inflation is going to probably uh, be around uh, until sometime into the summer of 2022. No, they meant the fall of 22. We, we, we know that. Uh, anyway, Pete, let me, um, <laughs> let, me, uh, let, right. let me come to you. Okay, so we think that the taper is baked in um, to the market. But if we're left on Wednesday afternoon, by the, the Fed chair with the idea that rate hikes are, in fact, pulled way more forward than we expected. I mean, you know, David Costin at Goldman's pulled his own view forward to July of 22 with a, you know, Leesman's charts just showed us June is when you really start to ramp up expectations. Are we cool with that, too? Or does that bring more turbulence in the markets that you watch ever so closely because we have to get our arms around the fact that rates are going to be moving higher, and it's not just a taper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would say that I think that, that some of it is baked in. I wouldn't say everything is baked in, Scott. I mean, it's a very difficult thing, obviously, to measure. But, you know, I don't know that markets always want to fully digest something until they actually know some of the facts. And what, is the, what are we laying out there for them? So that's something, obviously, the Fed's going to address, I think, and give us a little bit more of a pinpoint on things in terms of when things are going to actually happen. I think that's something that we always have to deal with that. But I think overall, Scott, let's, let's be honest. When you look at where we really are right now, in terms of these rates, yes, those hikes are going to cause a little bit of uh, maybe turbulence here and there. But I think the reality is that, it, that, that much of it is priced in. And going forward, we have such an expectation of it, even if you're not fully buying in on it. I think you're feeling a little bit more comfortable. You know what's really probably in front of us. And it doesn't mean that that means technology immediately gets slapped around. I don't think it means that at all. I think it means that when you look at these quality companies that we've been looking at each and every day. We talk about these FANG names, but it's much more expanded than that. I think those names all can, can do very, very well in this continual, very low rate environment, because even with a couple of raises, Scott, we're still talking about incredibly low rates. So because of that, I think the technology space and other spaces will still react very, very nicely going forward. Brent, I've got back to Mike Wilson, right? He, he makes the case that the fundamental picture is deteriorating for stocks, and he directly links it to the Fed starting to tighten policy. On the other hand, I've got Fundstrat's Tom Lee, 
who's been Mr. All-In uh, everything for, for a while. He says we're entering a buy November and HODL, hold on for dear life, versus the other side of sell in May. So you have two um, polar opposite views of where stocks are going to go um, as a result in part of, of the Fed. Mike Wilson says that's going to be the straw. And, you know, I hear optimism on the other side that says, well, we can deal with it. We can take it. The market expects it. It's all good. Yeah, I'm going to I think Tom is I think Tom is spot on. Obviously, we have that seasonality going into the last two months of the year. I get what I get what Mike is saying about the Fed and that deteriorates the outlook. But where I think the flaw in that is we're at zero rates. And so the Fed raising rates, let's say we do the taper, which is fiscally irresponsible if we don't do. And so the market definitely might have some indigestion as that taper starts and ends, or it may not. I mean, nothing that Mike is saying is a secret. It's already priced into the market, or it seems to be. And as I said earlier, the rate environment is so low right now. It means that if we can get rates off of zero, that's a really positive thing. That shows that the economy is doing well. What's not positive is what you have in Europe where you still have negative rates on the short end because they have not been able to lift the economy to actually have positive rates. And so I think it ultimately would be viewed as positive. And I do think Mike needs to throw in the towel, or I'll be interested if he does, because if we go into December and we're still higher and he hasn't thrown in the towel, that's a really, a really painful he's, trade he's to have hanging, had on he's all hanging, year long. He's <laughs> hanging onto the towel by a, by a pinky at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, I, just by the, the, the narrative that he's put forth most recently. Leesman, leave me with your last thought before I move on. Um, your antenna up for any kind of surprises this week from the Fed? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the key questions are going to be those that ask uh, uh, Chair Powell about the idea of raising rates and how quickly that comes. But, you know, it's interesting. I want to pick up on something Pete said and something Bryn said. First thing, uh, Pete is right. The market's not going to internalize this until the chair and or some sort of polarity of, of, of the Fed board says this is going to happen. So right now there's a possibility it happens. You're going to um, uh, price that into your idea, but you're not going to fully price in two rate hikes or, uh, in, in June or, or September mm-hmm. of 22 yet until you hear from the chair. The other thing is the market's dealing with an interesting issue here. The market doesn't want to see inflation run away. So there might be a bid in the market that, hey, if the Fed is going to move faster, that's going to solve or at least address the inflation problem sooner. So I can take that worry, which, by the way, in, in our survey tomorrow, which you'll see, inflation is now the number one issue, not only in the Fed survey, but in the All-America survey when we talk to, when we talk to average Americans. So the idea that the Fed might address that inflation problem sooner uh, is something that I think is an upside for the market. To, but there might be, as I think Steve Weiss said, a little volatility in getting there. Sure, because, you, you know, you're going to have the, the doubts creep in as to whether they can do the job correctly, right? right? Or they make a mistake or, or whatever happens. All right, Steve, we appreciate it. It'll, it'll, be- it'll move from strong hands. You'll have the strong hands, weak hands thing where the people who want to hold more stocks or, or, few, or fewer stocks at a higher funds rate. Right now, I think it's zero. So it's all in on stocks. Right. That'll change somewhat. That equation will change somewhat for some holders of stocks at a higher at higher interest rates. I right. appreciate it. As always, we'll see you this week. Uh, that's Steve Leisman. All right. Let's bring in Pleasure. Adam Parker. Now he's the founder of Trivariate Research joining us once again. Mr. Parker, welcome back. Are you are you still bullish? Yeah. Why wouldn't you be? Well, I mean, the Fed might change its policy, probably is going to change its policy. 
right? Yeah, Maybe rates are going to go up. Multiple has to come down. I mean, I could come up with other reasons, whether I believe them or not. Yeah, I know you and I have talked about this on the air, you know, every month or so for the last couple of years where, you know, the, the concerns are rolling, whether it's China or other things. I think the main question is, do you think corporate earnings are going to be higher next year than this year? And if you do, I think your bias is to still like equities and, and U.S. equities. Right. But I mean, earnings are not going to continue. It's impossible, really. They're, they're not going to be able to continue their rate of growth as you get further and further away from the pandemic. Right. I mean, don't we know that? For sure. Yeah, for sure. Look, forward earnings estimates from analysts in the U.S. have existed since 1978. That's when you started posting to a central location estimates. Um, so that's 53 years. Uh, sorry. Uh, since 1978, 43 years. Um, and in 31 of those 43 years, their January estimates proved to be way too high. The only years they were too low were the recession recoveries and year after, whereas you suspect, and you're right, the analysts all get too bearish at the bottom, which is what we saw last year. So this is normal behavior, Scott. And what will happen is not, it's fine. The estimates are too high next year. So what? What will matter is, are they higher? Are the actual earnings higher next year? If they are, uh, the markets can typically work. Obviously, the stock market has not been down 31 in the last 43 years. So I think that's the key. Do you think earnings will be higher next year than this year? And I do. Okay. So I'm going to put you in the uncomfortable position of having to comment on um, Mike Wilson's latest research. Now, I mean, you don't have to dump on him. Nothing's, or nothing's more uncomfortable. Or nothing's more uncomfortable than being at a big firm, being bearish and wrong. So I, I've been there. In, in that seat in the same office, and I get it. You're bearish and wrong come bonus season, it's ugly. So I, I don't want, I don't envy that position. Um, I've been there, I've been in all four quadrants, you know, bullish, bearish, right, wrong. I, I think calling a market top and saying there's going to be a correction, you're saying you think earnings are going to be impaired and that people are going to be afraid they're going to be very impaired. So what do you look at, Scott? I look at capital spending, inventory, hiring. Things that can impede my view. The biggest issues are going to be rising wages, rising input costs with commodities and transportation. When you look at earnings season so far, you see some of that in some places. In others, you see the companies passing it on. Net, net, earnings is going to be higher. And you, I, I like the landscape. I've got 1.5% or so dividend yield. I've got some buybacks coming in that are going to be big. And I'm going to have earnings growth. So let's call it 6 to 8% total return is the outlook for U.S. equities. What looks better to you? Fixed income? Well, how, so, long, how, like, long can yeah. the, how long can the good times last then? Well, um, you know, I, I think as long as you think earnings are going to grow, it could be a long time. I think this Fed thing is interesting. I heard you guys talking a little bit about what's priced in. I guess I'm a little bit with, you know, Pete, which is it probably isn't priced in in the very short term or you never know. I always think that question of priced in is your horizon. The day they announce something, there'll be a rotation underneath the market and maybe a sell off. The question is, why are they doing it? They're doing it because they think the economy's better and growth's better. And if that's the case, it's probably bullish in a three to six month view. I don't view from the starting level. I think Bren's right. The starting level matters at some at some level. And so if you're starting this low and you raise it a little, it shouldn't ruin everything. Uh, so I, I don't think the Fed, you know, wrecks the whole thing just by raising things once or twice. Weiss, I mean, um, he seems to make good sense, does Adam Parker, doesn't he? Do you poke holes <laughs> in his story or, or what? No, I, I don't poke holes in the story, but I, I do have a question, and that question goes to multiple expansion. Earnings sure. are not going to be up as much as they were this year. That, that's, that's just uh, a the fact mathematical, to be determined. It will be determined yeah. that way. Yeah. Right. So, so when you, when I believe that multiple expansion got us to a good part of where we are to today, 
And if you right, see a slowdown in earnings growth and then you add and then hold on, I'm not done. Then you add the Fed, which I think they yeah. pull forward the rate increases, maybe even more aggressively than what Costin's looking for. Wouldn't that give you even more downside volatility into the, in the market? Yeah, look, it's harder to forecast the multiple than as the earnings because there's more volatility in the multiple than the earnings. But if you look at this year, actually, guys, look carefully. On January 1st of this year, the estimates for the S&P 500 uh, came up 22.6% from where they were at the end of the year to where they are now. And that's about what the S&P's up. So there really hasn't been, in fact, there's been a tiny bit of multiple contractions there on a 12-month forward basis. So, you know, look, right now, I think the market's around 21 times 2022 estimates. The long-term average is 17 times forward, 15 times trailing. So we're looking at 21 versus the long-term average 17. So that's the gap we're dealing with to get back to average. I think part of that's explained by the low uh, real yields. I think part of it is explained by the fact that the U.S. equity market has a superior set of companies to much of history, FANGM and the like, software, biotech, higher margin, higher growth businesses. So I think it's about right. And I think if you get um, – you know, the earnings growth coming in, I think you'll still see flows into the market. I think the risk is your point, uh, Steve Weiss, that you could get multiple contraction. But I don't know why that'd be your base case, because I think today's multiple is about right with the constitution equities and interest rate environment that we have. Your, your positioning view is interesting to me, uh, and I want you to explain it, uh, sure. if not defend it. Uh, yeah. you, you say you want to be long or overweight energy and materials, but short or, and, or underweight industrials. Yes. Wouldn't yeah. those all when all three of those go together being yeah, well, on I mean, one side t- of the positive boat? Yeah. So it depends on your view of risk management, Judge. I mean, if you want to go all in and make the giant reflation call, you do it. What I look at, I think, within the equity market is where do I think the estimates are more achievable or are they less? You recall we've talked about this in the past that we've been maxim- maximally bullish on energy you know, for a long time. And the reason is the estimates are coming up. The stocks are cheap. They have positive momentum. There's supply constraints. And, uh, you know, I think that, that, that you're not really getting paid. You're, you know, you can get paid a lot for what could happen to the oil price. I think industrials, it's the opposite, right? What I've got here is I'm the one who's receiving the rising input costs in many cases. And what do I have? I have estimates that are 20% plus earnings growth every quarter all the way through 2022 embedded in the outlook. I've got high multiples on those estimates. I've got margins that have already recovered. So I'm basically saying I'm going to have record profitability. So this path month makes sense to me. You know, maybe energy materials are up 10, industrials are up 6, 5. They're not going to maybe, you know, one's not going to be up 10, the other's down 10. And I guess that's the point. I agree with you. But I think the question is, can I spread out here with a starting point of lower multiples and more achievable estimates for energy materials than, than industrials? Yes, I can. I know, and but so you're, say, you're, you're suggesting to potentially short industrials, but making the case for stronger growth. I, I just have a hard time believing yeah. that if you get yeah, sure. the stronger growth, that I would want to be short industrials. Yeah, look, in an uptape, it's hard to be short on anything. I think the way you play it is relative estimate achievability. The part of industrials that I would be short are select machinery and select capital goods, which we wrote about to our investors, where you see incremental margins embedded in the census outlook as very aggressive, meaning as the revenue grows, people think they're going to get more and more profitable, yet the margins have already recovered. If that's the case, and that's what's in the estimates, yet the input costs are rising, that's the risk. So I think there are some short ideas there. I think within industrials, there are select businesses in transportation and others that are still in the uh, you know, recovery recovery, recovery mode, as uh, Steve Leisman just said. So maybe those are not the ones you want to short as revenue picks up. But if you already have record margin and you're forecasted to have even higher margin, yet you have rising you know, energy costs, rising transportation, et cetera, I think those are the riskier parts of industrial. So I, I do think you can find naked shorts there. 
Uh, but I certainly like the S1 capability of energy materials more. All right. AP, it's good to see you. We'll talk to you guys Always soon. Always good to see you guys. All, All right. Be you, well. You Take as well. Care. Yep, you too. That's uh, Adam Parker, Trivariate Research. All right. Up next, we got Tesla hitting a record high again. We've got Pete making some moves in some mega cap tech. You need to hear about those. Steve Weiss is adding to a name in his book. I'm going to tell you about that. We'll do all that when we come back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Supreme Court justices appear to be leaning in favor of a challenge to Texas's near total ban on abortions. Conservative Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh both questioning the structure of the Texas law. Protesters on both sides of the abortion debate are gathered outside the Supreme Court. President Biden telling world leaders the U.S. will meet its pledge to sharply reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Biden making the remarks at the opening of the climate summit in Glasgow. We're going to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by well over a gigaton by 2030. We'll demonstrate to the world the United States is not only back at the table, but hopefully leading by the power of our example. On the news, full coverage of the first day of the climate summit and a look at the prospects for kickstarting negotiations on a new global climate deal. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And the Labor Department says it's only days away from publishing details on vaccine mandates for private businesses. That rule will apply to firms with at least 100 employees that will cover about two thirds of private sector workers. You are up to date, Scott. I'll send it back to you. Sue, you made everybody's day today. It is so good <laughs> to see you. I think you guys made my day. Great to see yeah, you, too. All right, Sue Herrera. All right, Pete, let's talk about some of your moves today. You sold calls sure. in Microsoft and Facebook. You still own shares. Tell us what's up. Well, those, those options actually exploded to the upside, particularly in Microsoft, Scott. And so I had to take them off just trying to be disciplined. I was buying very short-term options anyway. 
They moved rapidly as Microsoft fought against last week some of the earnings and some of the moves other places. So I just determined, I, you know what, I'm going to take both of these off and then reassess this week. So I'm already starting to see some very interesting paper in other un, uh, unusual option activity in a monster big cap tech as well. So I'll give that one for you when we do the unusual later on. Meta platforms. All right. Um, I, gotta, I still got to get used to that. All right, Pete. Um, Tesla. Yeah. The yeah. momentum to beat rolls on. I mean, another new high today, yeah. up 45 percent in a month, and you bought more calls. So you're just going to keep riding the momentum all the way up? I am. I'm going to continue to roll with them, Scott. As a matter of fact, you go back to October 15th, stock was 853 bucks, and then it's just gone steadily up each and every day. And the monster option activity that we've been seeing in there, buying more upside, has been right, 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 right. Eventually, it'll be wrong. We all know that. But for right now, they continue to roll up. And just last week, for instance, we had two monstrous hits in Tesla. Those immediately started to move to the upside. We've had volumes there, Scott, where we're well over 3 million contracts twice last week. Two million contracts has become the norm. Matter of fact, today already traded almost one and a half million contracts. So gives you a little bit of an idea of the appetite that people have. With the stock today trading around 1138, we had a buyer of 35,000 of this week's expiring 1,200 calls. Gives you a little bit of an idea. They just keep coming and coming and coming. And part of it, I think, is the implied volatilities here has been going down. It used to be triple digit. They used to trade 100% or more implied volatilities. Now we're talking about we got into the 40s not too ta- terribly long ago. It's starting to rise again. We're about 55 or 60 implied volatility. But that's well, obviously, half of where it had been. And that, I think, is enticing more and more folks there as well the fact that the implied volatilities have come in as much as they have. Now one of uh, surely the most unsurprising moves in the history of the halftime report. Steve Weiss is buying more Moderna. The stock's down four and a quarter percent. I, I knew this. I knew it was going to happen given the Twitter exchanges that we had along with Mr. All In Farmer Jim earlier today. I just had it in the back of my mind. And then I, sure enough, he's buying more Moderna. Weiss. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, I also did add to Tesla calls, as a matter of fact, and I rolled up. Not all 35,000 PCs, you still have to look for that person, but I did roll up and buy more. Look, on Moderna, it's very simple. When you get to know a stock very well, as Pete knows a bunch of his stocks and as Bryn does in terms of trading options, and, and Joe also, uh, you know when they're down, when they're supposed to be down, when they're down and down too much, take advantage. Stock was down 22. I bought it down 22. Uh, this is a trading position, top of the core position. I may be out today. So when they give you gifts, you have to. Look, the reason it's down is because the FDA delayed the process by which they're getting approval for the vaccine for 12 to 18-year-olds. And as I look at the data, they're do- and the Nordic report, which is not published, CDC comes out, and comes out and says, and the WHO comes out and says, look, according to our data, that the myocarditis is 11 per million in 12 to 30 or 39 year olds versus 12 and change for Moderna. Mm-hmm. So I'm not worried about this. So that's well, why I bought more as a trading let, position. Let me ask you I have this. a very full core position, so I can't touch that. All right. yes. well, let me yeah. ask you that, because uh, your guy Farmer Jim came with that yeah. the other day, too, about this. Well, it's a trading position on top of a core position. Why do you, why do you have that? Why, why do you need both? What, I mean, I understand it. It's an opportunity because I don't I don't want to change the 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 core position. And the core position is so large already that I don't want to keep 
you know, more keep adding stock to it. It's risk management. I mean, I've seen people take these monstrous positions, frankly, and literally blow up because they had so much confidence. So as much confidence I have in the position, there's always something go wrong. I also roll over, you know, I buy, I sell calls, I buy puts, I have okay. to have some puts, but far below, far below the, you know, you have the, some where puts? the stock is now. You have some puts? Uh, yeah, I've got, I have some puts, but they're so far below. It's, uh, we call it schmuck insurance. You know, if something goes really wrong, then I'm not going to be taken out and carried on a stretcher. No, I'm just trying so to get I a handle. To I'm, just, I'm just trying to get a handle on um, the hedging strategy, right? Having two positions yep. that are both bullish is not necessarily a great right. hedging strategy, which is why I asked you the question. I'm glad you gave me some more detail. More importantly, our viewers more detail on how you actually hedge a yeah. big position that you're you know, supremely bullish about. Yeah, and, and I can't hedge all of it with puts, uh, but I do hedge. You know, I'm about two thirds hedged on it now with puts. But again, the stock would have to have a major move. For me to uh, for me to make any money on those, or for, to really protect me, right. so I will suffer a loss if they go down. And I do short term puts also, so I continue to roll them. See, that's why we give all the detail we can. Weiss, I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Um, I know our viewers okay. actually appreciate that too. Um, all right, Joe, Bank of America. Okay, it's another. I know it's a Weiss stock, and he's had this one for a long time. But so so of others. Uh, Pete owns BAC. Joe, you own BAC. A downgraded to underperform. A sell? No. At Baird. No, no, no. Target stays no. at 42. No. Well, they did. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, yes, they no. did. That's what they <laughs> okay. did. Okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's the target. The target is above the December 2006 all-time high of 5508. That's exactly where this is going. This company currently has $25.5 billion of excess capital. That's 7% of its entire market cap. Hasn't even benefited from loan growth. Net interest income is going to be double digits for the next two years. I completely disagree. See you at 55. Pete, real quick. Well, I would agree with Joe. I'd also say when you look at an evaluation basis, Scott, we always talk about price to book. It's still very inexpensive. Measure this versus something like J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, some of those other great names. But you look at how inexpensive this stock is right now. I'm with Joe. I've owned this stock for probably the better part of a decade. I'll continue to hold on to it. I think this stock continues to go higher. I think there's plenty of room to the upside. I don't think it's just 55, Joe. I think this thing's going much higher than that over the next year. Well, all right. Let's uh trying to break positive on the day. All right, just ahead on the half, we have the big ETFs to watch today. Plus, Pete has his usual, unusual, his usual, unusual activity. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. If there ever was a year, active management should have outperformed passive index strategies. 
2020 and 2021 should have been it. Yet a recent report from Morningstar indicates that active managers in the last year did not outperform their passive peers compared to other years. Here to discuss the author of that report, Ben Johnson, director of global ETF research at Morningstar, along with Ed Rosenberg. He's the head of ETFs for American Century Investments. Ben, only 47 percent of all active managers outperformed their benchmarks in the year ending in June. The performance is much worse over longer periods of time. Why can't active managers outperform? Yeah, so what we saw in 2020 and continuing into 2021, Bob, was another data point that helps bust the myth that volatility is going to create better conditions for stock pickers, for bond selectors, that there's any such thing as a stock pickers market. What we see is over a long period of time, active managers have a very difficult task ahead of them. They've got to get it right more often than they don't. They've got to survive to be able to prove that they're right. And what we see is, especially over longer periods of time, most funds fail to survive. And the ones that do survive, only a tiny minority manage to both live and to outperform their average passive peer. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Only 11 percent over 10 years of the active big fund managers for equities outperform. Ed, you oversee several actively managed equity ETFs for American Century, and they have outperformed this year. Congratulations. Given the odds that you heard from Ben here, how does an active manager outperform these days? I mean, I think it's staying true to what they do. Specifically, if they're large cap growth, they stick to large cap growth as well as large cap value. But it's also you know, making sure that the fees are appropriate for the fund and you're not overcharging. By having your fees set appropriately and the manager doing his or her job, it gives you the opportunity to outperform over the long term. Yeah, excess fees are definitely the alpha killer. Equity managers aren't beating indexes, but bond fund managers are doing better. Much more on the battle between active and passive management coming up on ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Ben and Ed will be joined by Jerome Schneider, who oversees the PIMCO Short Maturity ETF. This is the second largest actively managed bond fund in the world. They have been outperforming. He'll tell us why. ETFedge.cnbc.com, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Halftime back right after this. All right, Pete, unusual. What do you got? Well, I kind of teased you with that. I talked about a mega cap tech that was hitting. It's Apple. Uh, And Apple trading right around 148, just a little bit below that, Scott. And this week's expiring 152 and a half strike calls. They bought 50,000 of these. That's a pretty major move. That's somebody who's expecting to see this stock make a pretty significant move to the upside in a fairly short period of time. These expire Friday, November 5th. My second one is IGT. Now, this is a name that's hit on multiple occasions over the last couple of months. It's been right, right, right this whole ride to the upside, starting with the stock in the low 20s, and now here it is close to 31. We had a buyer today of the November 38 calls. They bought almost 10,000 of those calls for 25 cents, but they also bought 10,000 of the January 33 calls for about $2.50. They've been right for a long time, Scott. I'm following along with this one. I've been in and out of IGT on multiple occasions. We've had it for unusual option activity multiple times. They just keep on coming for it, and the stock just keeps on going to the upside. The Apple thing's amazing to me, right? It's only nine bucks off of its high, right? They've got these supply chain (laughs) issues, cost the company $6 billion, according to Tim Cook. He says it could get worse this coming quarter or the, the current quarter. Yep. And yet the stock and you, you have this activity that's so bullish and the stock is uh, pushing 149. 
And I think part of that too, Scott, is the fact that a lot of those numbers, even though they were disappointments, were record numbers for Apple. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that kind of gets glossed over a little bit. Their numbers were really extraordinary, just short of what the expectations were. Yeah, no doubt. All right. SPACs, they were back in October, but with a catch. We're following that money and we'll do it next. SPACs made a comeback in October, Leslie Picker says, because she's following the money as always. Leslie, what do we know? (laughs) Hey, Scott. Yeah, nearly double the number of SPACs debuted in October compared with September. 57 total, the biggest monthly number since March, right before the market fell off a cliff. In fact, this October was even busier than last October, which is when SPACs really started to take off. So what's behind the recent surge? Well, According to experts in this space, a lot of it is just pent-up backlog, deals that were set to debut until the market froze over regulatory and accounting concerns, remember, kind of earlier in the spring. Now bankers and sponsors agreed that it's basically now or never for SPACs if they're going to list them before your end. But the market itself hasn't exactly rebounded in the way that SPAC issuance has. The CNBC SPAC 50 index of public SPACs still looking for deals is down more than 3% this year. You can see it kind of has just really trailed off since the spring. Now, as a result, many of the SPACs that are debuting, well, they're doing so with major concessions for investors, according to SPAC Insider. These include a greater fraction of a warrant for each unit sold, less time to find a deal, a deadline of, say, 15 months instead of the standard 24 months, and more money held in trust. Scott. Is this like a sentiment gauge in some respects, like the markets have come back, the, everybody's feeling better about the markets, we're back in bull mode, and so naturally, I mean, Bitcoin 61,000 and SPACs are back. I think that's absolutely right. This has definitely been more of a momentum trade. It's something that people see as having little downside. A lot of hedge funds have gotten into this space because there's always the option to redeem if you don't like the deal. And of course, there's the upside. If you get into one of these SPACs that tends to take a a company that becomes maybe a meme stock, that's certainly an upside trade there. That said, this is something that really only works if the collective investor base believe it works. And so when you have more of a bull market sentiment going on, of course, SPACs tend to do better as well. All right, Les, following the money as always. Appreciate it. Leslie Picker. Thank you. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back with two final trades next. Plus, check out CNBC's new online documentary with Melissa Lee, How the AMC Apes Cracked Wall Street. You can find it at CNBC.com and CNBC's YouTube channel. Halftime's back right after this. Time flies when you're having fun. And Weiss is here. Bryn, you're up first. Uh, Visa is my final trade. You know, since Visa's numbers came out last week, the stock's off about 12 percent. They had great numbers, double digit earnings, revenue and net income. Um, J.P. Morgan has a target price of 277. So I think it's overdone at a good entry point entry point. But most importantly, I pick Houston Astros for a game seven World Series winner. Oh, the asterisks. OK, Weiss. FedEx, GXO reports tomorrow. Get good information, the whole freight industry. Okay, Joe? Ford, it's on the verge of a 20-year breakout. All right, and Pete? I'm going to give you a Hilton. There's some buying out there in April, Scott. Okay, good stuff. 
Uh, let's check the market when, uh, once again. Again, off the open today, we did have records across the board. Dow, Nasdaq, and S&P all at new highs. The Dow crossing 36,000 for the first time earlier today. Does it for us. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.